0: The and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lossley. Well, this year is 2021, marks 30 years since Operation Desert Storm in 1991, which was a very important moment in the history of air power. And that's where a U.S.-led coalition fought the, I'd say, the first major large-scale conventional war since the Vietnam War. And in that conflict, you know, the U.S introduced a host of new technologies and new tactics and doctrines, and all those things continue to influence the use of air power to this day. So it's a very important kind of moment in the history of air power 30 years ago. And to talk about all of that, today we're joined by retired Air Force Lieutenant General David Deptula. And if that name is familiar to some of our listeners, it's because General Deptula has had a long and distinguished career in the U.S. Air Force. Just to name a few highlights, he flew over 400 hours of combat time in the F-15 Eagle. He was a joint task force commander for Operation Northern Watch in Iraq, served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance. And before all of that, General Deptula was the principal attack planner for Operation Desert Storm Coalition air campaign in 1991, which is what we're going to talk about today. General Deptula, thank you for being here.
1: Well, thanks, Mike. It's great to be uh, with uh, you and uh, Brian to uh, talk about uh, what was a significant emotional event in my life, as well as the lives of many others, and uh, I would tell you was a turning point in the conduct of modern warfare.
0: Awesome. Well, before we get into the conflict itself, can you tell us a little bit about you know your early career and what drove you to seek a career in the Air Force in the first place?
1: Well, I'll, t- I'll tr- try to be brief. Um, I had a, uh, a wonderful uh, childhood and young adulthood, if you would, growing up. My, uh, I grew up in an Air Force family. So my dad was an Air Force officer, career Air Force officer. He participated in uh, World War II as an aircraft maintenance officer on B-24s and B-29s in the Pacific. He then got out, got a master's degree back in the day. This is late 40s, early 50s. Went to teach aerospace engineering. Then he got back into the Air Force and developed a career in research and development. He loved to read and he would always take me, I mean, as a young kid to the library. So I started reading, I should say, looking at the pictures in Craven and Cates, which for air power aficionados out there was the history of air power in World War II. From a very early age, I was uh, very interested in aviation and uh, pursuing a career in the Air Force. He wasn't a pilot. He was in research and development into nuclear weapons effects development and then uh, aircraft design. Uh, but I tell you what, he was the most knowledgeable individual in my life with respect to the virtues and values of aerospace power. So he influenced me a lot. In high school, I got my private pilot's license. I I went through ROTC at Mr. Jefferson's University, University of Virginia, and then I went off to uh, flight school. You know, I kind of grew up in the formative years of the 60s, so watched all the space launches, was very interested in wanting to become an astronaut. But then I went to flight school and started to figure out what it was like to fly a high performance aircraft like the T-38, and I got an F-15, one of the first, I think I was in the second class or third class of lieutenants who got an F-15 directly out of Flight school. So once I started flying hands on, I decided, hey, why would I want to go be essentially a rider in a bus when I can be flying a fighter, you know, like a Ferrari? So I stuck with fighters, grew up in the uh, F 15. Went to F-15 fighter weapons school, and like most people in the Air Force, spent my first 10 years learning and becoming very, very proficient, honing my skills as a fighter pilot, became a fighter weapons school instructor, then an F-15 instructor, and then onwards and upwards, first tour in the Pentagon, and then began to branch out, as most people do. But I am proud to say that I'm the only person in the Air Force who's been fully combat mission qualified in the F-15 at every rank from lieutenant to lieutenant general. You know, I did a lot more flying when I was a lieutenant than I did when I was a lieutenant general. Uh, But it's something that uh, I kept. And it's important as a senior officer to retain that capability because you go down, you fly with the squadron, you become, you know, you're not treated as a lieutenant general anymore. You're treated as a guy in a four ship, whether you're one, two, three or four, and everything's leveled to capability. And that's kind of unique in in the piloting world. So I'll just stop there. I could go on for hours. I was blessed with a quite rich career, both in operations as well as air staff and senior joint positions.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you.
2: Well, let's take it back to, I guess, August of 1990, and you were serving on the checkmate staff working for Colonel John Warden. Is that correct?
1: Well, actually, not really, Brian. I had worked for John Warden for about 18 months as a member of the Doctrine Division. But then by the time Desert Storm came around, I had already left working for John and moved over working direct for the Secretary of the Air Force. Don Rice in his policy development group. And I'm the guy who actually wrote the white paper, Global Reach, Global Power, for Secretary Rice. But Colonel Warden and I maintain a very close relationship in terms of sharing ideas. And when Desert Storm kicked off, I went down to his office. It was on the 6th of August, and we started chatting about what could be done. And so we decided to meet in the Checkmate working spaces, which was down in the basement of the Pentagon. And we met there simply because it provided the largest amount of space where we could get people together and start talking about the challenges in front of us.
2: You know, I think a lot of folks, especially action officers today, their world revolves around PowerPoint. What type of planning materials, I mean, how were you guys doing business back then?
1: Well, You know, PowerPoint, kind of interesting, there was the early, early versions of many display uh, software packages. Microsoft had not yet captured the market with Word. So there were a variety of different presentations, but the bottom line is in the Pentagon at that time, uh, and it's interesting, uh, Brian, because I haven't thought about this for 30 plus years, but the principal means were acetate charts that you would build and draw and construct, but then you had to, as an action officer, you had to take them down to a special office, and man, they needed to have them 24 or 36 hours in. In advance. And they would actually translate your pictures and words into typesetting, put them on the acetate, and then that's what you'd put on the overhead chart.
0: So take us back to that process you're working with, Colonel Warden, and eventually this is going to go over the plans that you develop, go over to General Chuck Horner and kind of form the basis for what is going to become the air plan. What is that process like from, you know, what are your major concerns at the beginning? And then how did that plan evolve over time?
1: Well, Mike, I tell you, that's a that question. The answer to answer that question by itself, I've got a six-hour briefing. <laughs> uh, don't worry, I'm not going to take six hours. There were really two parts to the air campaign planning effort, and it, it's pretty exciting reading. I, I would offer two books to your audience if they're really interested in digging into this. One is called Heart of the Storm and it's written by retired Colonel Rich Reynolds. Uh, You can read it in about an hour and a half, two hours. It reads like a novel, but it's all true. And it talks about the early days of the planning effort. What I was gonna tell you, there so are really two parts to the air campaign planning effort. The one that was initiated on the 6th of August, 1990, in the Pentagon. And then the second was the planning effort at CENTCOM Forward in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, under the direction of General Horner, who became the first Joint Force Air Component commander. And uh, so, very briefly, the challenges were to define very, very early on the challenges were to define what are the objectives? What are the desired outcomes? What is the end game that we want to achieve. Colonel Warden, myself, and a group of other folks out of the air staff initially, but then we brought in folks from the other services, sat down in the checkmate spaces and came up with sort of, here are the general objectives that we believe are the ones that are the nation ought to uh, put at the forefront. And there are some interesting things that went on. I mean, some of those objectives got floated over to the National Security Council uh, because there was an individual on National Security Council staff who used to work with Colonel Warden and myself. And by and large, and guess what happened? What was kind of amazing is those objectives showed up. A presidential speech. And so now the objectives that we were now obligated to satisfy were ones that we kind of initiated. So that's some of the real, very, very briefly behind the scenes stuff that went on in Washington. But we developed a rapid response plan that Colonel Warden labeled as instant thunder, intentionally not to be the rolling thunder or long drawn out process of Vietnam in terms of air operations. And these initial attacks were planned to create the conditions that would cause Saddam not to move any further south into Saudi Arabia. We took that brief plan down to brief General Schwarzkopf, and we thought that would be the end of our contribution to this uh, process. But Schwarzkopf was not that happy with what he was getting from his staff. So he directed us to fly over and brief General Horner in theater. So the next day, we're on an airplane stuffed in the back of a rivet joint, RC-135, flying to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And the day after that, we're briefing General Horner. Actually, Colonel Warden briefed General Horner. And I'm sure your audience and you understand what happened then. Rich Reynolds' book goes into it in a lot of detail. But uh, Colonel uh, Warden came back to Washington, and I stayed over there. And uh, the next day, found myself briefing instant thunder to a guy by the name of Brigadier General Buster Glosson, who General Horner, who had asked to come over from an assignment he had in Manama, Bahrain, to kind of head up an offensive planning effort. And that sort of started the D detailed offensive campaign planning in theater. Our concerns changed on a daily basis. And I would tell you right up front, General Horner wanted to be able to have an executable air tasking order in about five days. And that was became a rolling five days. Those of us who were part of the what became a very small planning cell were under enormous pressure, not to complain, but to, just to relate the exigencies of the situation. There's new intelligence floating in every day. There are new equipment flying in every day, aircraft, ships, ground capabilities. And you know, the threat laydown is changing every day. So these multitude of changes really drives changing to what I began to coin as the master attack plan because things change so quickly, you know, what what I would tell the air tasking order planners was just hang on, I've got a couple more changes for you. And these happened all the time. So I finally got to the point where I said, look, I'm going to work on this this attack flow plan for six hours. And then I'll post it up here on this clipboard. And when you see that, then you can come up and do your translation the your tasking order at that time. And we'll call that the master attack plan. And so that's how that got named. That's about as as brief an answer I can give you up front, but there were essentially two major planning efforts, the Instant Thunder effort, which then later morphed into the Central Command Air Force's effort. But the underlying principles pretty much remained the same in the following uh, five months up to the buildup until the first day of execution. That's great. That kind
0: of leads into my next question, which is, you know, your plans evolving over time before the war even starts. But then once things start happening and and the war is really going and Operation Desert Storm has fully kicked off, I'm sure the plan is changing day by day, like you said. So I'm curious, what was meeting your expectations in those opening days and opening nights and what surprised you and and how did you adapt uh, to respond to the real conditions once combat started?
1: Uh, Great question, Mike. Uh, The opening 24-hour attack was an intricate plan that had been created over the prior five months that I just kind of summarized for you. But it was adjusted hourly, sometimes even more than that, all the way up to about 12 hours prior to execution. And I gotta tell you, it's really difficult to describe the intensity of the plan and the work that went into it. It certainly was the most demanding endeavor I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And and I've done a lot to include getting shot at by uh, the Iraqis. Stealth played a huge role as we were counting on their entry into Iraq in a covert fashion to shut down Iraq's air defenses by blinding their ability to detect the follow-on attacks of the non-stealthy aircraft and also to attack strategic nodes to isolate and paralyze any coherent response by Iraq's leadership. Now, we also use cruise missiles to assist in taking out perhaps the most leveraged target set of all, that being the electric power production and mainly distribution. That very, very first night, um, our air-to-air aircraft were tasked to look for and to shoot down Saddam's command and control aircraft because there was concern and we had some intel that he might use those to try to escape. Airfields were disabled by B-52s and Scud launch sites were attacked by F-15Es uh, and others. And that first 24 hours, F-16s and A-10s took on the Republican Guard uh, beginning their demise. As I mentioned earlier, I could go on for hours. But in summary, kind of that opening night in ensuing. Uh, days, there were 30 different types of Air Force aircraft alone, not to mention the other services and countries. Nearly 3,000 total sorties were flown that first 24 hours, and over 1,800 of those were direct combat sorties. Mike, we had 161 tankers airborne that first night, 161, and we'd not practiced that gaggle prior to that first night. I got to tell you, I was more concerned about losses from midairs than I was about the Iraqi air defense threats. So when we got word at the end of the first wave of attacks that there were no losses, the planners were simply ecstatic. In fact, in the entire first 24 hour period, we only lost one aircraft, and that was unfortunate, but you gotta be kidding me. This is one of the largest attacks, air campaign attacks in modern history, Uh, and our plan worked. In fact, it's been characterized as the most successful air campaign in history. But the bottom line is that opening attacks of the Desert Storm air campaign were really a radical departure in the conduct of warfare. We had over 150 discrete targets, and that's in addition to the regular Iraqi army forces surface-to-air missile sites that made up that master attack plan for the opening 24 hours. Well, what does that mean? To most people, i got to have something to put it in perspective. That's more targets in the first day of Desert Storm than the entire 8th Air Force hit over the course of two years in World War II. So never before in history had as many separate targets been attacked in less time than in Desert Storm. And the result was paralysis, confusion, and a rapid defeat of Saddam Hussein's gambit into Kuwait. All that said, I mean, I think it, it, it's important to understand. Look, this is involved more than the combat aircraft. It was truly an integrated effort that involved airlift, refueling, command and control, the crew chiefs, the weapons loaders, squadron intel, cooks, and others who were primarily from the Air Force, but the other air arms, and the other services, and many partner nations were involved too. And our success is a t- tribute to all those who participated.
2: Yeah, I think my favorite quote actually came from, uh, I believe it was a captured Iraqi general who said that he felt that the coalition air power could hear everything, see everything, and hit anything.
1: Yeah, that's a good one, Brian. You, you got to send me that when I can use in my presentation. You talked about a big surprise. I forgot to tell you. A big surprise was... We didn't get any frapping battle damage assessment. So, how are you supposed to plan for the next day if Intel doesn't come back to you with battle damage assessment? We had to come up with our own methodologies inside the planning cell. But I had this guy from Electronic Security Command. I said, Here's what I need to know from you every day Are these air defense operations centers communicating? Are they emitting? All I need to know. Because if they're not emitting, I'm not going to do anything with them. If they're emitting, they'll get a visit from an F 117 and a GBU 27 tonight. So, It was that effects-based feedback that was important in allowing us to optimize the distribution of weapons and, and aircraft. And generally, people don't understand that. They still view conflict like, you know, World War II, you go over there with a baseball bat and you just start whacking stuff. And that's not what happened.
0: So you mentioned a lot of these new aircraft that were, you know, making their mark in this campaign, the stealth fighter, the F-15, the F-16, you know, you've got Apache helicopters, A-10s, F-14s, F-A-18s, this whole new generation of aircraft that came out and, and those capabilities. Another thing that jumped out to me whenever I read about this conflict is, especially in the realm of the air-to-air stuff, like I was reading Craig Brown's debrief book, which is oral histories of the pilots that engaged in air-to-air, and almost every single one of their stories starts off off with, well, I got a call from AWACS, uh, or in the case of the Navy kills, you know, they get a call from their E-2, and I know that there's similar types of efforts being done by stars. Can you talk a little bit about those platforms, the AWACS, stars, E-2, early warning aircraft and how they were incorporated to in this effort and what they provided?
1: Sure. AWACS, JSTARS, E2, these were all aircraft, to put it in a broad sense, enhance the situational awareness of all of the other air campaign planners. So you mentioned the air-to-air crowd. Well, what AWACS does, which by the way, for the audience, AWACS stands for Airborne Warning and Control System, and that's essentially a pretty good description. It has a big picture look of the airspace and what's out there in the entire segment of the battle space that those fighters might be operating in where a fighter like an F-16 an F-15, F-14 F-18, whatever you know, they've got radars too, but they're only looking a small chunk of what's directly in front of them and a little bit to either side. AWACS has the big picture, if you will. And so they're able to provide information on adversary targets that the fighters might not see and make them aware of what's going on. Likewise, J. STARS carries a great big radar called a GMTI, Ground Moving Target Indicator. And so it can see what's going on on the ground day, night, all weather, to include sandstorms. JSTARS was still a prototype when Desert Storm broke out. But the Air Force sent it over there, which was really pretty incredible because JSTARS became a hero when the Iraqis tried to do their one and only major ground push into Saudi Arabia. And JSTAR saw exactly what they were doing. And General Horner redirected fighter aircraft that were airborne at the time and just obliterated the Iraqis movement. It was at nighttime. And so the Iraqis thought that they'd get by by hiding from you know, the our forces. But they didn't realize that there is no hiding anymore. Uh, and stars was instrumental in doing that. The E-2 is very much like AWACS, except a, a smaller radar system, but pretty much performs the same function. They were mainly providing oversight of what's going on in the vicinity of the Navy's carrier battle groups to make sure no one was going to sneak up and attack them. Well,
0: speaking of hiding and being hard to see, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I really want to ask it. Just could you expand on stealth a little bit? This F-117 stealth fighter. I know there had been a few sorties uh, in in some earlier conflicts, but this is, for all intents and purposes, the big premiere of the F-117 in combat. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of iconic aircraft and what it could do and why it played such a big role in this in this
1: conflict? I'm uh, sure happy to do so. Um, as you mentioned, there are lots of examples of new capabilities that came to pass in uh, Desert Storm, uh, but the most significant were stealth and precision. And I, I think the best way to get across the impact of those two characteristics is with a couple of examples. Let me just for your audience, let me talk just a bit about uh, precision because it's precision in conjunction with stealth, which really allowed us to change the dynamic and how we plan this war. In World War II, it took up to 1,000 bombers with 10 men each, dropping nine to 10,000 bombs to destroy just one area target. And the reason for those huge numbers is that they were necessary to compensate for the lack of accuracy. Back then, on average, half the bombs dropped by those aircraft landed outside a half a mile from the target. Now, in Desert Storm, the F-117s, F-111Es, and a couple of F-15Es could drop multiple laser-guided bombs, with each an accuracy of less than 10 feet. So that dramatically reduces the number of aircraft required to kill a specific target, and it expanded the number of targets that could be hit with a given number of aircraft. Now, to directly answer your question on stealth, I don't believe as many people are familiar with the leverage that stealth demonstrated in the first Gulf War. So let me give you an example that involves the first non-stealthy attack on one target with three aim points in the Basra airfield. The target is Shaiba airfield, to be exact. The attack package consisted of four Navy A-6s dropping bombs, along with four Saudi tornado bomb droppers, five Marine EA-6Bs jamming aqua position radars, four Air Force F-4Gs taking out SA-6 surface-to-air missile systems, 17 Navy F-18s taking out SA-2s, and then four F-18s as escort for potential MiGs in the area, and three drones to bring out the enemy radars. So if you do the math, that's 41 aircraft, eight of them dropping bombs on one target. Now, at approximately the same time, I've assigned 20 F-117s, all 20 dropping bombs on 38 aim points at 28 different targets. That's less than half the aircraft hitting over 1,200% the target base. That's the impact of stealth. It equates to a stealth multiplier of around 19, or put another way, in this particular example, it took 19 19 non-stealth aircraft to accomplish the effect of one stealth aircraft in this circumstance. So it was that combination of stealth, precision, and an effects-based targeting strategy that allowed us to strike targets across the breadth and depth of Iraq simultaneously the first night and every night thereafter in Desert Storm.
2: Now, as the air war progressed, and we've already talked about how you really can't overemphasize how well it went, but are there aspects that you wish had gone differently?
1: Well, it's a great question, Brian. Yeah, I wish the weather would have been better. I gotta tell you, that first night we had the worst weather in Baghdad in fourteen years. And that was probably the biggest surprise is just how dependent because you think, okay, you're out in the middle of the desert, you know, it's sunny all the time. And a matter of fact, <laughs> up Up until that night, there hadn't been a cloud in the sky for five months. But remember, we didn't have GPS-guided weapons. Those precision weapons were laser-guided, so if there's a cloud, they're not dropping. So that wasn't a mistake, perhaps, but it was something new that we hadn't considered. And from then on out, that first day, the first person I spoke to before I started planning the next day's operations was the weatherman. And I wanted to know where the fronts were coming through, because I was not going to I wouldn't even bother to plan any aircraft in that area. You know, aspects that I wish had gone differently. Now, these are pretty big picture strategic. I thought that from a strategic perspective, the air campaign was terminated too quickly, but that was a political decision. It's interesting to take a look in retrospect. And granted, we'd already collapsed over 50% of the fielded military forces. A couple more days, maybe a week or two, they just would have completely collapsed. But as it was, um, the service forces went in when they did and, uh, and wrapped things up. But from a larger perspective, there's also endgame. And I think this happened relatively quickly, but I also think that the president and his National Security Council staff were balancing concerns about just how far to take this? I mean, could we have overthrown Saddam at the time? And I think the answer was yes. I'm not suggesting that that should have been done, but it certainly should have been part of the decision calculus as we look at this now from 30 years hence and everything else that went on. You know, 10 to, or 12 years of no-fly zones, a second Iraq war devolving into counterinsurgency operations. So I think a, a much more holistic, whole-of-government thought process during the the military buildup would have been wise to come up with a much more geostrategic approach to follow on operations.
0: Well, that leads into kind of my next question, which is, as you look back 30 years later, what do you think the legacy of Desert Storm kind of is now? And, And how do you hope that historians will view this, you know, in the future?
1: Well, Mike, I tell you, Desert Storm was a turning point in the conduct of warfare as it set the conditions for modern conflict in five major ways. First, and then think about what I'm saying in the context of what's followed. First, it set expectations for low casualties on both sides of a conflict. Second, it foretold precision in the application of force for all future conflicts. You know, only about, depending upon what statistic you look at, five to eight percent of all the weapons in Desert Storm were precision weapons. In Operation Inherent, Resolve 99% of all the weapons were precision. But I digress. The third point is this introduced Desert Storm introduced a prosecution of a combined joint air campaign integrating all coalition and service air operations under the functional command of an air airman or a JFAC. And it worked very, very well. Fourth, it established desired effects as the focus of strategy and in the planning and conduct of operations as a critical element in how to get to your objectives in a logical fashion. Last but not least, for the first time in history, air power was used as a key force or the centerpiece in the strategy and execution of a war. Remember, Desert Storm was essentially a 43 day long sustained air campaign that happened to include four days of ground operations. Now, if I might, let me elaborate a bit on those five elements. You know, just again to reiterate, uh, the Desert Storm Air Campaign was a result of the juxtaposition of technology, planning perspective, organization, leadership, and training, all combined in a way that optimized the contribution of each. That's a big takeaway. You know, if there's any statement that describes the American way of war, it's what I just said. And while every conflict is unique, the military needs to retain the flexibility to capture and use these elements in a combination that's most relevant to execution of today and tomorrow's national security challenges. So if I may, let me offer six key takeaways from Desert Storm that have applicability to the future. The first one is that strategic effects or objectives were achieved by aligning ends, ways, and means in a manner that America projected force without projecting undue liability for its forces, while at the same time making it very difficult to impossible the enemy to counter. Next, I did mention earlier, but the effects-based systems approach applied in the design and the execution of the air campaign worked very well, and it still remains relevant to the conflicts of today and tomorrow. The third one is important to remember, because folks tend to get this wrong, but joint operations are best accomplished by using the right forces in the right places at the right times. Jointness is not homogeneity, and it's not synonymous with inter-service cooperation for own stake. It's not homogeneity or following little league rules of everyone gets to play in equal degrees. Fourth, and this is a general one, but it's important to remember, wars are won or lost by people. So it's crucial that the services educate people to understand how to develop effective options in their respective domains and then allow them to execute them when they're called to answer or to action. So people matter. And encouraging innovation and empowering people is how you're going to win. Uh, fifth, you go to the war with the to war with the military that you have. So preparation and foresight are crucial to future military success. And and finally, the probability of success in future conflicts will rise only if our armed services actually study and learn from both successes and failures and apply course corrections as a result of those lessons. So I really appreciate both you, Mike and uh, Brian chatting with me today about the lessons of Desert Storm, because there are many lessons that are still pertinent for today and the future. Well,
0: fantastic. Thank you so much for being here with us. Before we go, well, I why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the Mitchell Institute and where people can find you if they want to follow you online?
1: Well, that's very kind of you. The Mitchell Institute is uh, dedicated to three principal objectives. The first one is to educate the public on the virtues and values of uh, aerospace power. The second one is to influence the resource debate inside the decision makers in the capital area region, because, you know, Congress are the ones that write the checks and we need investment. And then the third one is to inculcate a degree of aerospace mindedness in the policy community. A lot of people understand navies and armies, they've been around with us for 10,000 years, but just over a, a little bit of a century in terms of air and space power. So that's what our focus is on. We write a series of papers, policy papers, uh, and uh, uh, position papers and full up studies. We have a whole panoply of different speaker series, but you can access all of our documents and speaker series at mitchelaerospacepower.org or probably Probably a little simpler. You can follow me on uh, Twitter where I tweet out all of those studies at Deptula David. So thanks again, Mike and Brian and uh, you two have a great aerospace power kind of day.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you having you. Brian, where can we find you online as well?
2: So you can find me uh, at www.brianlashley.com and you can also find me on Twitter at Brian All
0: right. Well, I'm on Twitter as well at uh, Hank stein with a t-i-e-n and all of us are online at balloonstodrones.com our music was created by jason davis at digital fish media which you can find on facebook at digitalfishmedia.org if you'd like to send us an email please go to balloonstodrones.com contact and to submit an article to us for publication please go to balloonstodrones.com submissions thank you all and we will see you next time